This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is so great to have you here today. Today's episode is a rewind conversation. So today's conversation originally aired on Eco Chic February of 2021, and it was our very first book club episode. We are reading a really iconic book on this episode called Deluxe by Dana Thomas, How Luxury Lost Its Luster. We are reading with my great friend, Megan McSherry. She is a sustainability content creator. She has a background in sustainable supply chains and in fashion. So she was kind of the perfect person to read this book with. Deluxe is a really fascinating read that is a behind-the-scenes, research-based look at the luxury fashion industry as it stands today. And this is a book that I am constantly recommending, so I knew if I was ever to re-release a book club episode, this would be the one. Dana Thomas is a journalist who covers style and the business of luxury for a whole bunch of publications, The Washington Post, Newsweek, The New York Times... And she has lived in Paris for the past 15 years, where she really digs deep into the dark side of the luxury fashion industry. Dana Thomas does call out specific brands for their practices, for their business philosophies. And on this book club episode with Megan, we do talk in depth about brands like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Burberry. We also talk, of course, about the globalization of luxury fashion, the democratization, the way that supply chains have gotten more and more rooted in class and in culture. And we talk about the role of capitalism. This is a really fascinating book for anyone who loves fashion, but also for anyone who's fascinated by luxury brands and how they operate in our society. If you have not read this book, I highly recommend it. And also, if you have not read this book, this episode is not full of spoilers by any means because it is a nonfiction book. It is a research-based book. So a lot of our discussions are around specific points and analyzing kind of narratives that are shared throughout the book. So no spoilers here, but a really great read-along guide. Also, if you enjoy this conversation or if you want a little bit more information, I'm going to go ahead and link in the show notes an episode I did called Stuff for Status. It is a really deep dive specifically on handbags and the evolution of the it bag over time. I am really, really proud of that episode. I called it a thesis because it was so in-depth, so well-researched in my opinion. I'll go ahead and link it if you haven't listened to it before, but that's a great episode that builds on a lot of the conversations that we had today. Now, quickly on book club episodes, book club started in 2021 as a once a month episode. I would read a book with a fellow content creator in the space, and then we'd record an episode. After that year, we switched to every other month book club episodes because they do get kind of tricky to 
time depending on reading styles and I want to make sure that I share the book choice far enough in advance that if anyone wants to read along with us you can before the episode comes out. So I wanted to share this particular episode with the news that book club is back this year as an every other month episode segment and I will continue to share the book choices every month on social media, on TikTok, and on Instagram. All of my links are always in the show notes if you want to follow along. And then I'll also, of course, be sharing things on this show once a week. If you are not subscribed to Eco Chic already, make sure you go ahead and check wherever you're listening today, whether that's Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, you can go ahead and rate and review the podcast. Especially if you're on Spotify, I really want to get some more reviews on Spotify or ratings, I should say, on Spotify. They rolled those out like halfway through last year. I would really appreciate a five-star rating. Share this episode with a friend. Let me know your thoughts on social. I look forward to chatting with you. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Megan McSherry, a book club chat on Deluxe by Dana Thomas, How Luxury Lost Its Luster. Enjoy. You are someone who has such a deep knowledge of supply chains and of fashion and really like the globalization of fashion. So before we start talking about Deluxe, tell me a little bit about your background and where you come from in the fashion space. Yeah, so I decided pretty early on in college that I liked sustainable fashion. And I saw most people in the industry kind of approaching it from a design perspective but I knew that I didn't really want to design or I also knew I didn't really have the skills to be a designer. So I looked at other ways that I could make more of an impact in the sustainable and ethical fashion space and came across supply chain management. I had no idea what it was at the time, but figured out kind of as time went on that it was kind of everything from sourcing to planning to purchasing products to shipping them to the customer. And to me, that was like, a bingo moment. I was like, that's clearly an area where there's so much room for sustainability and not a lot of happening there. So I, after graduating from USC with my undergrad in business administration, I got a master's in supply chain management. And I worked with three different fashion brands, one that was completely zero waste startup from the ground up that completely failed, but was such an interesting experience and two other global brands. Um, And I just think there's so much room for growth in the industry, but sustainable fashion is really my passion. But I I love operations and thinking about how businesses make decisions, which is why Deluxe was so fascinating for me because I feel like there were so many different parts that were about business decisions kind of hidden under like design decisions. It just was so interesting to see how brands changed and decisions were made and and stuff like that. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought the business decisions throughout the book were really interesting to me because there's this central message of democratizing fashion and democratizing luxury fashion, which I think is, it's both like very fascinating to me as a consumer and something I feel like I shouldn't be aware of or participating in. Mm -hmm. And just taking a step back, did you have a lot of exposure to luxury brands growing up? Like, yes and no, I would say. I've never purchased something directly from a luxury brand. And I actually, like, in high school, went to a private school where you had a uniform and you weren't allowed to have, like, brand logos on anything. So I wasn't seeing it kind of in my day-to-day life, but I was 
I loved fashion. I was constantly reading magazines and, you know, seeing some of the like rich moms in my town wearing brand names that I recognized from magazines. So like, yes and no, I was aware of it, but it seemed so far off from something that I could ever wear or own. Um, it definitely, and that's like what I associated luxury with. I was like, it's exclusive. It's something that you like just have to save up for and like can only have in the future when you're like very wealthy and doing really well in your life. <laughs> yeah, I kind of had the same, I mean, I guess the same experience, not so much in my immediate circles. Like my family was not a family that participated in luxury brands. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't see it at home, but seeing like the rich moms in my neighborhood growing up or uh, I'm someone who loves early 2000s nostalgia like pop culture Mm -hmm. and so there are certain bags that I always assumed were like the pivotal like it girl like when you're 25 like you need to have this Burberry like (laughs) mini bag that's what I think of or those multicolor Louis Vuitton bags the white ones with the rainbow logos Mm -hmm. and also now looking at the book like I see that so much of how we view celebrities and how we view celebrity fashion is product placement. A lot of it is product placement. It's like the modern advertisement. And there was this whole narrative in the book about how people like Rachel Zoe and celebrity stylists were really put in place to be this middleman because before celebrity stylists, celebrities are not inherently stylish people. Yeah. And so when you put a middleman in place to like promote these designers and push these bags and what does it mean to have an it bag of the season? And like, just thinking about celebrities as like walking advertisements was also really, really fascinating to me. Yeah. And it was interesting for me to read that too, because so much of, I think about that a lot now with influencers, like there's so much product placement, not so much from luxury brands, but from, you know, middle luxury or like just regular brands so much of it is product placement. I mean, paparazzi photos of influencers too. Like you you notice the clothes that they're wearing and I'm sure that it is like the influencers have kind of become the new celebrity because still to us, like through social media, celebrities still have that like really far off feeling like air about them. Like we watch them on TV, we could see them on social media, but like I'll never be a celebrity. <laughs> like my friends will never be celebrities. You can kind of, connect to influencers more which probably makes you want to buy what they have even more and if it's attainable to you it's just it's it's a business but I would be so fascinated to see if there was like an updated chapter or whatever on influencers in this book because I'm sure that there's lots to be said about that. I completely agree and when I was thinking about influencers and bags and what it means to be an it bag going back to that was the Dior saddlebag. I immediately thought Mm -hmm. of that. And I said, because I remember when it was coming out and I felt like everyone on the internet had one of these Dior saddlebags. And I feel like they're kind of ugly, like no offense or anything to them, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it's super impractical because it's like an asymmetrical bag. You can never fit a wallet, but I, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's such a weird shape. Or the next one that I was thinking of, and I feel really guilty because I, I really want one is that Prada nylon mini bag, 2005 Mm -hmm. re-edition. And it got me thinking about nylon. I feel bad. I don't own a designer bag, but I love to just look at them. But Mm -hmm. thinking about a nylon bag being $900 sounds And considered luxury. And considered luxury. And considered luxury. And why do we pay a premium for things that are, I mean, they could be 
made by anyone else. They could be low quality. It could be made by any kind of textile, but because it has a Prada logo, I'm thinking it makes sense to pay that kind of money for it. You know, I'm, I'm not, but you know what I mean? It's Uh like the rationale behind, like, why do we pay so much just because it has a brand name? Yeah. And I think there's like two parts to that. First, I feel like a lot of the, like going back to the celebrity placement, like the it bags, the whole idea of the it bags is for it to be cool. Like you don't have to think that it looks good to have one, but if everybody has one or the coolest celebrities have one, you're going to want one. Like I remember the little mini Celine like square bags. That was like the first bag that I remember wanting. And I look back at it now and I'm like, I never liked the way that looked. Like, why did I want that? And it was because it looked, seemed like everybody else had it. And then it also goes back to the brand name. And this was something that shocked me in my first supply chain internship where I was asking how much products costed to make and then to see what the upcharge was. And my manager was telling me, you know, we make sunglasses in this factory and the same factory makes sunglasses for Chanel and Prada. And they sell them for like hundreds of dollars more than we sell ours for. And that was shocking to me. That was kind of the first time that I realized that luxury products aren't necessarily made of luxury materials and they're not necessarily like the highest quality product you can buy. It's just like so much of it is the brand name, especially with those like lower market accessories, like the t-shirts and the perfumes even, it's like a huge margin item for those brands. So it's just shocking the power that those logos and the brand name has on like your consumer thoughts and like wanting to feel like you need something. Quick break to tell you about Earth Breeze. Have you ever wondered why does laundry detergent come in these massive plastic jugs? They're inconvenient, they're awkward, they're heavy, and they're kind of a mess. Dig this, they're also filled with up to 90% water. Washing machines already use water, so it seems kind of silly that we're paying for it and struggling so much with these big jugs. Not to mention, 91% of these jugs don't get recycled. We've still got to do laundry, but how are we cutting back on what we're sending to the landfill? I switched to EarthBreeze. My new EarthBreeze laundry detergent eco sheets look just like dryer sheets, but they're not. They dissolve 100% in any wash cycle, whether you're using hot or cold water. It really couldn't be easier. There's no measuring, there's no mess, you just toss them in. EarthBreeze has really reinvented the concept of detergent. The packaging is super compact, it's biodegradable, and it's plastic-free. And these eco sheets are vegan, cruelty-free, and tested by a dermatologist, so they're safe for sensitive skin. There are flexible subscription options that can be adjusted, paused, or canceled by you at any time with no penalty. With their Buy One Give 10 initiative, each purchase donates 10 loads of detergent to a charitable cause of your choice. A whopping 30 million loads have already been donated. Now, the most important part is that you're still getting a very powerful clean for your clothes. I've shared this story before. I was introduced to Earth Breeze sometime last summer by my friend's aunt, actually. I was traveling a lot and she shared some Earth Breeze eco sheets as a solution for being able to wash my clothes on the go. And I was sold. I continued to buy them and I am so thankful to be working with them now because it's a product that I really use and I really, really love. So the laundry detergent eco sheets look like dryer sheets, like I mentioned. They This paper packaging that has sheets inside of it. So a little bit smaller than a typical sheet of paper. And then that sheet is perforated down the middle. So you have two halves for each sheet. 
And the way it works, if you have a small load of laundry, you only have to use one half. If you're doing a little bit more, one full sheet. So two halves of the laundry sheet. And then if you're doing a lot, so anytime I'm like doing my sheets and my towels or something like that, I'll put in two sheets of the Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It really could not be easier. I feel like the measuring is so straightforward. And I honestly love how compact it is. I love that I'm not having to buy these big jugs. And again, I love that I can travel with these Eco Sheets. I think that's the biggest plus for me. They're so compact. You can just toss them in any wash cycle. You don't have to worry about the machine. You don't have to worry about the water temperature. You really won't know how great they are until you try it. If you don't like it, Earth Breeze will give you a full refund. You don't even have to send back the product. They are that confident that you'll love it as much as I love it. Now's the time to try Earth Breeze because right now my listeners can subscribe and get 40% off. Go to earthbreeze.com slash eco chic to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash eco chic for 40% off. Earthbreeze.com slash eco chic. It will be in the show notes. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up perfume because that was a section that really, really blew my mind thinking about Mm -hmm. consumer marketplace decisions. And when they're talking about perfumes as this kind of introductory bit of the brand, it allows the middle market, the department store shopper to feel like they're buying into the dream of owning a luxury product. It never really occurred to me that perfumes are all made in these very generic labs and they're kind of sold off to these luxury companies and you test them out and maybe one recipe gets shown to a bunch of different brands or groups and they license out their name and everything is done by a third party company and the brand all they really do is put their name on the box and they license out their name Mm -hmm. and that's the end of it and I never really thought of perfumes that way. I never thought of perfumes as being so, so separate from the actual label that's on the bottle. Yeah, I also was shocked about the whole recipes being like pre-made by the laboratories, just shown to the brands or like smelled, (laughs) sprayed in the air so that the brands could smell them. Because again, when I think of luxury, I think of like making really specific decisions about the design of your product or the smell of the perfume that you want people to associate with your brand. And it was like disappointing to hear that it's just pre-made and they, they pick something that was already made by some person in a lab. Um, so it, it just goes back to like trying to get luxury out to the masses. Like, is that just taking away from what luxury actually is or does luxury even really exist or is it just like a figment of our imagination and advertising making us think that something is like high quality made for us, but not actually. Yeah. I think about that too now. And I feel like, I feel like the word luxury means different things to different brands. Mm -hmm. And the one that now really, really strikes me is Louis Vuitton and how in the introductory chapter, Dana Thomas calls Louis Vuitton the McDonald's of luxury fashion because they churn out so many pieces. It's so democratized. Anyone could buy a Louis Vuitton bag, quote unquote. And that gave me so much perspective because I was like, oh, why do we consider this a luxury brand? It's Mm -hmm. made by machines. It's all the same leather. It's all the same design, maybe cut in different ways for different seasons. But what does it mean to be truly luxury? And then you take these Louis Vuitton factories that are just machines, essentially, and you're comparing it to something like Birkin, and you're thinking about a $10,000 bag that takes someone 24 hours to make, and just the incredible difference in 
the actual production of these bags. I mean, it's reflected in the prices because a Louis Vuitton bag is a fraction of what a Birkin costs. Mm -hmm. But when you're looking at calling them both luxury items, it just doesn't seem fair. Yeah. And also thinking, I was constantly thinking about like supply chain and manufacturing while I was reading about the differences in how things were made, like mass production, like assembly line, just moving something, doing one action, moving something through a sewing machine to put a bag together, or like layering a ton of different bag materials on top of a laser cutter and like cutting out the shape of the bag that you need versus at Hermes having each individual like skin or piece of leather for a bag being looked at, picking only the best one, and then having one person make an entire bag from start to finish. It's like so different, not only in skill level, but like attention to detail. And to me, that's quality. Like regardless of what materials things are made of, like that is like artisanship and like really putting thought into a bag. And even again, looking at like the amount of products that Hermes sells, like they could easily sell way more Birkin bags than they're making. And they have years long waiting lists, but they decide not to because they want to preserve their brand as a luxury brand, or at least that bag as a luxury product. Whereas, yeah, I was also shocked by Louis Vuitton being called the McDonald's of luxury fashion. It's just shocking because to me, it still seems like luxury, but it's, it's the logo, it's the brand name, not necessarily the way that it's made. So it's just so interesting. This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. And the one thing that I felt like was kind of the saving grace detail of Louis Vuitton is that they still make trunks by hand Mm -hmm. in this one tiny villa of a factory somewhere in France by I think it was like 15 or 16 people work there. And the trunk was kind of the initial product that Louis Vuitton brought out. Not it it was it was because Mm -hmm. it was a square trunk and you could fit it on the back of a carriage. And this claim to fame product that people now use as coffee tables or decor, decor in their homes. Yeah. It doesn't really serve its original purpose, but the people who are buying them new are actually buying a premium product. So it's kind of interesting to think that the one product that they're kind of still credited with being truly a piece of art is there. I think it was like less than 200 are sold every year. Not mm-hmm. that many people make them, not that many people buy them just the evolution of the brand, not even, I don't want to say the rise and fall, but like the Uh way that they've really rethought what it means to be a luxury brand and giving people this in to something that wasn't really ever intended for the mass market. Yeah. It's, 
It's interesting. And thinking about what wasn't really intended for the mass market, like now it is. And especially when towards one of the last chapters, they were talking about um, collaborations with fast fashion brands and luxury designers. And I remember seeing some, like I know H&M has a ton of different collaborations with different designers and even Target has had like somebody designer's name by Target or whatever those collections are. And I always saw those as like cool ways, cheap, inexpensive ways to get a like designer product. And again, back then I was thinking like designer products, luxury products are higher quality. They're made to last. Like everything is paid attention to every detail. But now knowing everything I know about fast fashion and how everything's produced and why it's able to be made at a lower cost. It just feels wrong because <laughs> like you're being sold a logo again on just like a cheaper item of clothing. But the whole point there is again, to get the brand name out there, more people are wearing it, but then it's that balance. Like you don't want everybody wearing your luxury logo name because then it's not luxury anymore. You want to make as much money. And that's what was so shocking to me at the end, just that it's so much of the industry is so focused on the bottom line instead of design. So getting it out to all the people that it wasn't originally for, but now they're trying to target as that middle market. Yeah, that brings me to think also a lot about inclusivity. And I think I mentioned this to you before we started recording that Mm -hmm. this inclusivity problem of luxury brands is so not reflected in the way that they're trying to meet the middle market. And there's a whole bit about Waikiki and how Japanese tourists have made Hawaii this like shopping destination because of duty-free shopping and not having Mm -hmm. to pay taxes and all of these um, luxury brands being able to open stores in Waikiki and how profitable they are and everything like that. But because of the type of tourists that's shopping at these stores and the type of people who are buying duty-free items, luxury items, they only carry up to a size eight, I think it was, or a size six or a size eight. And then shoes don't go any higher than a seven or an eight in women's shoe sizes. And what does it mean to be truly inclusive if you are carrying such small sizes, if you're carrying such a small range? What does it mean to look at handbags? There was a whole bit about handbags and the value of a handbag to a company is that you don't have to worry about sizing. You don't have to worry about age. You don't have to like face all of the problems that the fashion industry as a whole is facing. Facing, And what does it mean for a luxury brand to be truly democratized or available to the mass markets if they're still not catering to the same demands that we're asking of all of the other major brands. And I think the part that was so interesting to me about all of that was the difference that brands tried to have between their storefronts and like what products were available in like their flagship stores or their Rodeo Drive store versus like their own owned outlets where they sold products that you know weren't as perfect or or extra sizes like there just was so much attention paid to what kind of inventory how much inventory they wanted to have in their stores and especially in those like high profile areas and I think so much of it is just to create this environment of exclusivity and like only certain people can be part of this luxury world if they fit into the sizes that they have or if they have the money to drop on a bag. So yeah, I mean, they they are trying to like escape those issues that the whole rest of the fashion industry is facing and um, 
it's, it was just interesting to see their their kind of thought process behind it, especially saying like bags, you don't have to worry about size. Like who, th- who thinks like that? Like bags are an accessory. Yeah. Like it's just, yeah, yeah, it was just so strange. Yeah, it was really strange. And even thinking about the storefronts and bags and enticing people to come in and drop all this money on something that doesn't really represent what the brand was supposed to represent. There was also a lot of conversation about storefronts and bringing in these architects to rebuild flagship stores, Rodeo Drive stores for $20 million of a remodel. And the fashion brand saying, that's a great investment. We can recoup it in two years. And we know that more people are coming and spending because this particular architect redid our building. And thinking about the way a the, the way a bag is displayed in a store, how that's supposed to give the consumer an air of like, I should pay more for this item because of the way that it's presented or because of how exclusive it is to get it. And all of that is a facade. It's all so calculated and, and manipulative. It's kind of, once I started thinking about like storefronts, I think that was like, yeah, that was a whole different level of uh, playing the game that I wasn't expecting. Mm -hmm. I took a fashion merchandising class uh, before college and just thought it was going to be like designing window storefronts and like, you know, choosing the cool clothes that go on the mannequins in the window. But it was so much more about like, where do you place the, like, what do you put by the register? Like, you're going to put like keychains and wallets and like lip balms, like little things that people while they're waiting in line can just pick up and add to their bag so that you sell more. Like everything was so calculated. Like you want backpacks on one part of the store and like other products on in different corners and like the less expensive items way toward the back. So you have to walk by everything else on your way to go see it. So it was just like, everything was so calculated. And I think that's kind of when I started to lose the like, I don't know, I, I like made up this vision of what fashion was like in my mind. It was like, everybody's just designing things because they love how it looks. But it's such a calculated business. I think especially with luxury, it's like so much about image. And again, like making money that they just don't care what they have to do to keep up that front. And it's wild how much thought goes into every single decision. Knowing what you know about how stores are designed and now like the textile process, how do you feel about buying into a luxury brand now as like your own person, a young woman, someone who's aware of supply chain issues, but someone who also likes fashion and always thought this Mm -hmm. was like a piece of the dream. How do you feel about like luxury handbags right now? I thought a lot about this while reading the book because I haven't thought about luxury, buying luxury items in a long time. I've always just kind of written it off. Like they're leather, like they're not sustainable. I'm just like, they're expensive. I'm just not interested. But something that I love about fashion is the story behind an item. I find that's way more often in the sustainable and ethical fashion industry. Like you can see what the factories look like. You can learn about why they chose this specific material for a certain item. And I really connected to the whole story of the Birkin bag and how like it's like the design is so specific to the brand and it's made in this special factory by one person all the way through. And I think there was something like the artisan stamp was like in the bag. So you could like tie it back to who made it, which is just so cool. And like, that is like an investment 
I wouldn't make right now, but I would consider making. Like there's a story behind it. Like that to me is the epitome of fashion. But all of the other things, if you're just gonna buy it for the brand name or just like to have the next it bag, that's the kind of fashion that I'm like really trying to consciously move away from because there's so much that goes on behind the scenes in terms of cutting corners to make more money and choosing not as good materials and not being so transparent about where things are made and how things are made that I just wouldn't be that interested. And like this story makes a huge difference to me in how a product is made. Yeah. I appreciate that. I like that a lot. I had similar and contradictory feelings Mm -hmm. because I feel the same way. I really thought that luxury fashion was something that I could never participate in. And even on the sustainability front, I love to, I'll be honest, I love to look through the Real Real, which Mm -hmm. is a luxury resale site. And it's just so fun to see what people turn in and like what holds value and what doesn't hold value. Mm -hmm. Like I was mentioning those Burberry bags earlier that I always thought as a young kid, I really needed one. They really don't sell for that much compared to what you were originally buying them for. So Burberry seems to not hold nearly as much value as something like a Louis Vuitton bag that does hold value pretty well, surprisingly Mm -hmm. enough. But it got me thinking like, if I was purchasing it on my own, I certainly wouldn't opt for the McDonald's of luxury fashion. Yeah. But there are specific collections that they were mentioning. This is, it took me a little bit longer to get through the book because I was looking up all of these collections, <laughs> thinking about the cherry collection of Louis Vuitton. I believe it was in 2005. They were saying that that cherry collection doubled their sales that year. And it was the first true, like heavily photographed collection specialty item of a luxury brand. And I was like, that's cool. Like I would love a piece of pop culture 2005 fashion history. But at the same time, I know it's like not nearly worth whatever I'd be paying for it. You know, I think there's like now this interesting disconnect that I have with like the history of these brands and like how exciting it is that um, even thinking about the handbag in general, I feel like after I read this book, I should have written off handbags altogether and been like, I don't believe in the luxury handbag. But there's a bit about how handbags really became popular in the 60s during the suffragette movement and women being like, if we don't have pockets, we're just going to deal with it ourselves yeah. and we're going to get hand-. And I was like, I love handbags. I love that. feminist yeah. of me, you know? <laughs> so I think there's like now this really kind of inner conflict where like I know so much that I don't know what I believe as, as an individual, as a consumer. Yeah, it's hard. I feel like I, I kind of have that back and forth. Like, of course, I'm like so fascinated by how like the Birkin bag, for example, is made and it's such a thoughtful, like every single piece of the production is thought out. But like, do I need a Birkin bag? No. <laughs> like, do I even like how they look? Not really. It's just, I like am so fascinated by the process and the story. And I love the history of fashion, like learning about how bags came about and handbags became really popular. Like, I love that. But like I I'm having trouble like you are kind of separating what really makes me interested in something and what makes me want to have something I feel like we've always it's like that fashion industry thing that makes you think that because something is trendy and cool like you want to have it not just because like it's something that's interesting to you it's like you you feel like it's cool you have to have it or it's interesting and you have to have it but you can just find something interesting from afar so it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Oh, I thank you for saying that. I think 
I'm someone who needs to come to better terms with like I can find something interesting from afar because I will go into these deep dives of like if it's a bag I don't really think that much about designer shoes because I feel like they get scuffed up that sounds like an awful investment for you know for a middle market person like me but when I think about um bags or if I think about maybe like a wallet something I'm using every single day I could certainly rationalize like I'm going to spend this kind of money on it because I'm going to use it so much but I also know that the upcharge on these items are absolutely ridiculous and I think there was also a bit about I don't remember what brand it was but they were saying that Um, Dana Thomas was saying that she visited the factory and saw that they were being like this particular item was being sold for $120 and then she went into town and it was being sold for $1,200 and what are consumers willing to pay a premium for and how do you kind of get duped and what we've been saying this whole time we are absolutely being played by the luxury fashion brands we're being played by the whole industry and rationalizing those purchases in our head to say it has a good story or it's high quality because it's a luxury brand is us continuing to feed into this cycle of thinking we need more and thinking that if we're consuming a certain way, we become a certain type of person. And I was on a side note, reading something recently about why we buy certain things. It was actually in the book, Sustainable Minimalism, if you Mm -hmm. haven't read that yet, but by Stephanie Safarian. And she was saying that the reason that you feel like you need to buy certain things is because you think buying those things will make you a certain person. And I think the example was like something like a kitchen appliance, like me buying a KitchenAid mixer doesn't actually make me a wonderful baker. But I think that because I have it, I'm now suddenly like a really good homemaker or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And so when we're thinking about fashion, it's like, why do I feel the pressure to buy a certain bag or buy, I always give the example of like short white booties. I've wanted them all quarantine. (laughs) I'm not going anywhere, so I don't need new shoes. Mm -hmm. But this pressure of like buying something new because it's going to make me a certain type of person is also really, really hard to detach yourself from. Yeah. And I think that's what made the whole chapter about counterfeit so interesting to me and the huge demand for counterfeit products. I mean, I, my freshman year of business school, traveled to China with my class to learn about international business. And we went to those markets where they sell the bags that look like kind of like knockoffs, but also like could be close enough to the real product. And yeah, I bought two fake Michael Kors bags for me and my friend matching. And then a Michael Kors bag for my mom that she could carry around as her purse because she used to get hers at Costco. And like, it wasn't because I liked how the bag looked, but I was like, I can get a bag that looks just like this designer for like 20 bucks. That would be hundreds of dollars in the store. And who wouldn't want to like feel that way? And it it was just such a like overwhelming experience walking through all of these levels and levels and levels of these malls that were just completely knockoff designer items. And everybody was coming after you, trying to give you the best deal and negotiate and give you more items than you really needed. Um, But the whole, like everybody who was on that trip with me, my whole class that freshman year bought something because it was like a little piece of luxury that we were able to have that we could buy like with our freshman year of college money, you know, like free money to spend. So it was just so interesting. But then I brought the bag home to my mom and she was like, oh, I don't know if I want to use this. Like, it's just so pretty. 
like she was like overwhelmed by the fact that it was you know a, a brand name bag even if it wasn't made to the same quality or if there's something wrong with it um she was like not so comfortable using a kind of designer bag as her everyday bag so it's just interesting like the way that we we feel like we will gain something by having those kind of products but then at the same time if we invest in it we're like scared to wear it or scared to use it because it feels like it's just so special it like has to be protected it's just so interesting there's there were so many thoughts i had about the whole counterfeit section yeah well i want to ask you on the topic of counterfeit items especially since you have this background and like formal education in I mean, quote, black markets. I always think that's such like an intimidating term. Mm -hmm. When I think black markets, I think of like people selling pythons and, yes. <laughs> um, you know, like organs on the internet. But when we're talking about counterfeit items, I think there's like an interesting economic case to make too. Is it wrong to support counterfeit items because you're taking something away from these luxury labels? Or is it good because you're supporting these small individual people just trying to make a dollar? Like what's, what's the right thing yeah. to do? And I've struggled with that because, I mean, I live in New York and I've been to Chinatown before and there's, you know, all of those places, like, do you want to see a, this designer bag, like come to the back and I'll show you like all of the nice bags. So it's something I like grew up kind of thinking about, but I feel like it's tough because like, I don't kind of want to support either one, <laughs> you know, like I, I respect the idea of intellectual property and like obviously the best case scenario is that designs wouldn't be stolen and you could just support the company that like created that design but they're like multi-billion dollar companies that are charging huge profits for their bags just because of the logos that are on it and if you want that but you don't want to pay that price or you don't want to support those people there are alternatives but at the same time like those bags aren't guaranteed to be produced using good materials or produced ethically. I think they talked about child labor in this part, which is just scary to think about. Like you have no idea where the product is coming from. So like, which one is better? It's kind of like the lesser of two evils kind of. I mean, I don't know. I, I struggle with that, I do. But I think it comes down to like personal thoughts. The other thing is like selling counterfeit goods is illegal, but like not really illegal. Like it, it's hard to punish people for selling counterfeit items unless they're like the ones actually buying it or like shipping it on the cargo ships and like getting it through customs. They were saying they like arrest people on Santee Alley in Los Angeles and then they're back like four days later selling in their same booth and they know what they're risking but there's huge reward in selling counterfeit items. So it's just tricky. I think they said something in the book like the only way to stop counterfeit is to get people to stop shopping. Like there's no way to stop it otherwise. So of course I don't want to like encourage that. I don't know. Clearly I have mixed thoughts, but it's just so complicated. It's one of those like classic fashion industry. Like, is there really a better option? Everything is so nuanced and there's so much that is just so secretive. I feel like if things were just more transparent, it would, it should be clear to make a better decision, but I don't know. I did not have nearly as much thought around counterfeit items. So I'm glad that you shared that. I kind of read the section and I sat with it and I said, this is strange. And then I kind of moved on and I didn't want to think that much about it because there is this huge moral component of like, yeah. maybe it's 
it's capitalism. Maybe the problem is that we're buying these brands to begin with, or that we're buying anything to begin with, or that we Mm -hmm. feel like we need a new handbag, whether it's designer or not. Or, I mean, even just thinking again about this middle market consumer, why is it that we go into like a Target or a TJ Maxx just to browse without a shopping list? Like, why do we feel that way? And the psychology of shopping is like, I mean, that's a whole different can of worms to open up. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I feel like there's no right answer to any of these questions, which is kind of frustrating. Yeah. And that, I think that's the hard part about fashion. Like there's, there's so much nuance to every single issue that you can come upon that like, how are you supposed to make decision? And I feel like that's so much of what fashion and especially more sustainable and ethical fashion comes down to in my mind is your personal beliefs. Like I don't shop counterfeit items anymore because I just feel like there's too much unknown and it makes me uncomfortable. And I'd rather know where something something is coming from and like the company that's behind it and all the people that are behind it. But that's a personal belief. And I also just choose not to buy the luxury items that I would buy counterfeit items of because I don't have that same pull to like be part of the luxury universe, but some people do. And maybe that's really important to them for whatever reason. And so there's so much that comes down to like personal values, like choosing animal leather or not, whether you're vegan or not, like there are pros and cons to kind of so many things. So it just comes down to personal beliefs and your, your priorities, which is so different for everybody. That was a very powerful statement. I have to say, (laughs) I feel like for me, when I was reflecting on this book and what I learned from it, I think that it left me with that same, like very controversial, like conflicting feeling of, do I want to buy something because now I can see the creative directors behind it and how, because Mark Jacobs was the, you know, assistant to this person then broke off to be his own brand and like the kind of intricacies of the fashion industry. It gave me such an interesting, I don't know if it's so much appreciation, but it gave me a different level of understanding to say that all of these people work in the same circles. They all know each other. All of these brands are competing, but they're also kind of friendly. And all of the textiles are owned by the same people. And even when we're looking at these big conglomerates like LVMH, they own so many brands that are able to use all of the same textiles. They can Mm -hmm. both buy them. Or you see all of these brands lined up next to each other in shopping malls because they buy really large spaces at a time. And what does it mean for fashion to be so packaged and and even being owned by a conglomerate to me is like really strange to think yeah. about a fashion company that way. They're all producing the same things, but they're not competing, but they're kind of competing. And I think I was just left with a lot of questions about like what my moral implications are in this case. And I think that I'm one of those people that has an affinity towards luxury items because it was always so coveted to me. It's not mm-hmm. something that I actively buy. I don't buy luxury items. Like I'm making myself out to sound like I'm like, so <laughs> I, I don't buy luxury items. Yeah. But I mean, like I would, I would love to be able to say like, yeah, let's, let's get a Birkin bag. Like put me on that wait list. And in three years, mm-hmm. here's $15,000 and I will give you my custom order. Um, but I, I also can't imagine making that kind of rational decision. $15,000 sounds like, yes, it's a piece of art, but it's also $15,000 that I could do a lot of other things with. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think there's just so I'm, I'm left with so many questions on an ind- individual level. I'll probably still feel fine if I want to buy those middle market items, like a perfume, like a perfume mm-hmm. to me, it's like, it doesn't really have brand implications if it's really just licensing, but 
you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd rather buy a perfume than a body spray. Like there's, there's certain things that I'm going to be okay with, I think moving forward, but there's certain things that I'm always going to really check myself when I'm finding myself lusting over them. Yeah, I agree. I feel like this book kind of moved my like thought process about the whole fashion industry forward, but also kind of backward. Like, I don't know. I've, I've always just thought of fashion as this like incredible thing where like people are just designing what they think is beautiful and are just putting out their designs out there but it's such a calculated industry and I've said this before while we were talking like it's just there's so many thought processes behind it and these public companies these conglomerates like you answer to the shareholders at the end of the day and are they really designing because they think something is cool or are they designing things now because they think it'll sell and so it, it loses that like specialty or it's not as exciting as like, like a Birkin bag is, I mean, I'm not going to buy a Birkin bag again, but like, it's so specifically crafted like that to me is fashion, but what, what else, what is everything else? Like, it's just stuff. So it, it like leaves me sitting with like a weird feeling because I love fashion. My whole life I've like known that I want to work in fashion and I like care about it so much and I think about it all the time. But like, what does, what is fashion? Like this whole book, I was like, what is luxury? But at the end I was like, what is fashion? I mean, like, what? <laughs> it was a very philosophical experience for me, but really, I mean, I'm, I'm left with more questions than answers. It's just it's always interesting to have those like moments that kind of pull you out of the like, like pull you back into reality. Like I was in my little fashion bubble, like this is such an exciting place and it's beautiful, but no, it's just, it's so calculated. Oh my God. I feel the <laughs> same way. I feel the same way. And I'm actually so glad that you said that and kind of validated my experience because I did really like this book, but I also wish that I had been left with more of a conclusion for myself, for my own sake, mm -hmm. as a consumer, as someone who appreciates fashion, as someone who's like clearly easily duped by things that I see on the internet and definitely susceptible to the it bag of the season. I just, I don't know. I liked this book and I would recommend it to anyone who likes fashion or is interested in supply chains or is interested mm -hmm. in the history behind these brands. That was another really fascinating thing to think about. Like I mean, even just fun facts like Coco Chanel, Coco wasn't her real name and she was a yeah. singer and they called her Coco. Like, I love that so much. Or thinking about Chanel number no. five, talking about perfume as being the first real perfume that was like a mixed smell. It wasn't purely orange or purely jasmine. Mm -hmm. And when I think of Chanel number no. five, I think of like my grandmother, I think of like an old woman scent, mm -hmm. but there's a reason that it's so popular and there's a reason that it's so historic and it it gave me a deeper level of, of appreciation for things that I already assume to be mainstakes in the fashion industry, mm -hmm. luxury or otherwise. But I don't know. I, I still don't know where I stand on any of these things now that I know them. I don't know if I should be appreciative or if I should be like repulsed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tricky. And I feel like that's why conversations like this are important because we each could have just read this book on our own and like walked away with like feeling like we should have had some kind of clear takeaway or like just being so confused, but knowing that 
I'm not the only one that's like left kind of feeling more confused or just having so many more thoughts about the industry as a whole than I did when I started reading. It makes me feel better, which I feel like it makes everybody feel better to know that there are other people out there that are feeling the same way. But I feel like we are kind of coming to this like time and fashion where people are starting to learn about how the decisions are made and kind of like we're breaking down the walls and the facade of the industry and it's disheartening but like you still want to buy into it because it's something you've been so you've grown up with it and it's something that you wear clothes every day like it's not really something you can just like forget about especially if you like love fashion and grew up loving fashion but yeah I, I do feel like having this conversation it's so important to just talk about your thoughts and know that kind of it's okay to have different ideas and different values especially when it comes to fashion and just that you're going to have a variety of thoughts when you're when you learn about stuff like this agreed agreed and again I'm glad we're on the same page and like similarly confused if you had to give this book a rating out of five what would you rate it so I already gave it a rating on uh, Goodreads, my little like book. I just keep track of all the books that I read. And I think I gave it a four. I do that too. Yeah. I did too. I did too. Because I thought it was fascinating. And I loved learning about kind of the history of the brands, as you were saying, and like the kind of back end of luxury. I feel like you don't hear about that a lot and like manufacturing decisions. But yeah, kind of like you were saying, I feel like it didn't like wrap things up for me. Like I, I like things to be like tied neatly in a bow. I like to have like, here's what you should think. Like in conclusion, here is luxury and here are the problems or here's what you should think. And it's just not like that. It's, it's such a personal thing and it's confusing and I don't know, but I loved the reading experience. And I feel like there's such good information in there, especially from the supply chain perspective. I was like, wow, I feel like I understand what they're talking about. And like mass production and like this is so interesting so I loved reading it but I feel like like I, I was left kind of wanting something more and that maybe that's just like the personal reflection I need to have about what I value as a consumer but yeah so a four four stars okay I gave it also four stars because I felt the same way again I wanted a conclusion and I wanted not necessarily like actionable steps. I didn't need the author to tell me what to do or how to feel, but I think that's also kind of a product of it being a pretty unbiased book. I think she did so much research and clearly did all of the tours and every single piece of fashion history that Dana Thomas could get her hands on. She clearly did. And I think that because it was a pretty unbiased account from my perspective, that's why I'm left so confused. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's good for me, you know, like maybe it's good that I'm not only reading things from people that I agree with. And not to say that she doesn't agree with me or agree with us, but her opinion just isn't clear. Yeah. Her opinion just isn't clear at the end, which I guess, I guess is good, but I don't know. I need some clear opinions. I need some direction and overall, you know, thank you for joining me, Megan. This has been a treat because- I think if I had read this on my own, I would have been just left very muddy. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I'm glad we had the chance to chat about this. And I'm curious to see what people think when they listen to the podcast. So I'm, I'm sure everybody has their own take on it. And that's always interesting, too. 
I hope you enjoyed that Rewind conversation, a book club episode with Megan McSherry on Deluxe by Dana Thomas, How Luxury Lost Its Luster. I'm constantly recommending it to people and I am constantly referring back to things I learned in this book. It really changed the way that I think about the luxury fashion space. Again, I'm gonna link in the show notes that episode Stuff for Status, the thesis on the it bag. I'm really proud of that episode if you haven't heard it. I think it's a great one to go back to, especially if you are interested in not just luxury fashion, but the way that consumerism and kind of like social status and social currency plays into luxury items. With that, thank you so, so much for tuning in. I hope you have a really awesome day and I will see you next week. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.